Welcome to We'll Always Have Paris, a podcast that dissects and discusses culture's best and worst love stories set in the city we call home. I'm Rachel Kapelke-Dale, author of several novels, including The Ingenue and The Ballerinas. And I'm Nafkote Tambarat, author of The Parking Lot Attendant. And I'm Chris Newens. I'm a journalist and non-fiction writer. This week on the pod, we start out with the Paris Pages, a segment that brings you our takes and takeaways about the city we love. Today, we discuss how France translates movie titles and present our theories about why they make everything sexy in a sometimes too literal way. Then it's time for the love story, the segment where we do a deep dive into a classic Paris-based love story from fact or fiction to figure out whether it works and if we buy it. Today, we'll be wrapping up our Hemingway month with a discussion of the film Midnight in Paris by Woody Allen. The scenes we loved, the impressions we hated, and whether this was something we even needed to see. Finally, we'll round things off with a game of Mary Fuck Kill, the segment in which we apply the classic slumber party game to the characters from our main love story. This podcast contains explicit language and it discusses adult themes. In this episode in particular, we briefly discuss allegations of sexual abuse against Alan. Please listen with care. Thanks for joining us. Now here's this week's episode of We'll Always Have Paris. And now it's time for the Paris pages, where we tell you what we've been thinking about in terms of France and Paris this week. I have to admit, I'm a little bit cheating because I heard Paris and I was like, cool, 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 cool. I'll think about the city. And then I consulted with a friend of the podcast, Francis, asking, what should I talk about? And then she mentioned something that has been the bee in my proverbial bonnet for the last, I don't know, decade or so. Which is how France has decided to retitle movies that are not originally French movies. Oh, this is my favorite topic. Thank you. Thank you. And and it's related to love. I'll get to it. But something that's really important to note for those who do not live in Paris or do not live in France um, is that (laughs) unlike, for example, I don't know, in Quebec, right, where they just do a literal French translation of other languages, France is a little bit different. Sometimes they do a French translation. Sometimes they'll throw a curveball and they'll get an English title and then give it another English title. And sometimes they use the original title mm-hmm. and it actually has weird connotations in French. One example of this was Saw Number no. 6, which when you say it in French comes out as saucisse, meaning <laughs> sausage. <laughs> And you know what? Nobody wants to know how that sausage gets made. (laughs) Probably a spoiler for the movie. Exactly. And I know I've already brought this up on the podcast, but again, up in the air, the French title is in the air. Imagine the hours that it took to really decide, should we excise the up or should we keep it in? It was at least six hours of meetings. Yep. Uh, we you know. Film people like meetings. French people love meetings. <laughs> French people love any excuse to not French go. film people? Oh, that's all they do. Um, and this is so not really related to the theme today, but to give you an example, the Hangover movies in, <laughs> in yeah. France are 
very bad trip. No, no, Nav, they're they're called very bad Bad trip. trip. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You're right. Um, uh, Which is something you get from Caen, and it comes from the inside of a pig, I believe. (laughs) I'm going to give you a few titles, and I want you to tell me what you see being the recurring theme, okay? So the original title, Eurotrip. French title, Sex Trip. Original title, Wild Things. French title, Sex Crimes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, that's correct. (laughs) Sorry, it's the American version of that. They're just like, ooh, it's wild. And is she going to touch your dick? And maybe it's all wet. And look at these girls making out in a pool. And France is just like, this is crimes. (laughs) Crimes are happening. (laughs) We've also got original title, Not Not Another Teen Movie. In France, Sex Academy. Um, the movie Out Cold in France was called Snow, Sex, and Sun. Sorry, going back just one step, though. My high school was called Sex Academy, so they might have just been. Oh, my God. It's a documentary. <laughs> How do we not know? <laughs> um, a few more. Tangled, which is a thriller. In France, it's called Sex Trouble. <laughs> Pixar movie. like that. <laughs> It is. It's just called Sex Trouble. <laughs> What's your problem? Toy Story. Um, sex Toy Story. A Short History of Decay. In France, uh, Sexy Therapy. And it's only called Sexy Therapy because another English title movie was already called Sex Therapy. So it was taken. So they just added that Y. And of course, the really famous one is Step Up, Sexy Dance. <laughs> So and of course, there's the the sex friends one. Oh my god, that was the f- oh yeah, I did watch that one by the way in theaters. I'm- I forget which one that was because there were two movies about friends with benefits at the same time. Yep, yep. Well, I actually this is you, you're probably going to judge me here. No s- strings attached. Sorry, was called Sex Friends. Continue, Chris. Sorry. Um, I got fired from a job. Um, because you made too many sex friends. <laughs> no. Um, well, you know, I had this you made uh, sex friends in the wrong way. Yeah. Did you do sexy therapy? <laughs> you know that I had this uh, gig where I had to edit erotic literature. You got fired from that gig? Is it the Herald Tribune? <laughs> but so, yeah, so I had uh, I had a job where I, I had to, I, I mean, I, in fact, I was the, the sort of the secondary proofreader, effectively. So the, it was so it was a French um, erotic book company. Mm-hmm. And um, the books were translated from French into English. And then I had to edit the the English proofs and sort of see that everything worked, you know, in the translation was okay. So that was effective. That was the job. And I could, you know, change things a little bit if I wanted to. But there was a one of the books was called Sex Friends. Uh And I went through the entire book. Uh, and did all of the editing and stuff like that as I was supposed to do. But it never occurred to me that the title Sex Friends in English didn't make sense. And I, I blame that on just living in France and that Sex Friends, I just thought, well, you know, a Sex Friend, that's a that's a, a trope. Well, because it's something that a French friend would say and you're just like, I know what they mean. So, like, let's just move on with it. It's like how for the first year that I was here, I called a roommate, like my when I would refer back to my New York roommates, I'd call her my copine de chambre. <laughs> I did that too. Which really means like bedroom girlfriend, and and everybody like would give me weird looks because what I was supposed to say was co-renter. <laughs> but it just it is astonishing how many ways that French I don't even know it's not the producers right it's whoever has this job. The way that sex just becomes, it just seems like at some point a French person sees a title and goes, can we put sex in it? And everyone's like, yeah, I think we absolutely can. 
But is it a direct translation? Absolutely not. Okay, fine. And so I tried, I tried to Google this. I tried to figure out what's going on. And it's exactly as simple as it seems. <laughs> Every single website I saw was, well, it really does seem like French people understand the word sex the best. And so we just keep using it. Okay, people, but are you sure there's not another way of doing this? Because it also seems crazy to me that the obvious option seems to be just fucking translate the titles into French. It's absurd to me that in France the idea is, no, 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 it's got to be English. Because actually, to be fair, something that's important to know and might not be very obvious if you don't live here is that French marketers have this idea that English is cool. Period. It's the stop. same way that Americans think that French is cool. We think French is cool sometimes. We think French is cool for certain products. Like for luxury products, absolutely. For something that's supposed to be like a little bit exotic or luxurious. French people just seem to think English is cool, period. Because I used to work in marketing in France. Spoiler, um, you know, big reveal. She named all these movies. <laughs> that's This is me. I'm, you know, coming out. Um, but it really was when I worked in marketing – we were always told to use English. And that's actually why for a lot of Americans, a lot of English-speaking people who come to Paris, you can get a job anywhere as long as it's with words, even if you don't speak a word. No, you can't. Nobody else move here. It's oh, enough. We, we have enough of us. <laughs> we're at capacity. You're right. Well, not anymore. Back in the day. Come here taking our jobs. Yeah. <laughs> but it's absurd, right? Like English has this cachet that I mean, I'm, well, cachet, but um, it just seems... <laughs> there we go. Ironique. <laughs> if you guys go way far back on my Instagram, the first fall that I was here, Monoprix, which is the French Target, did a British line. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in which each person, first of all, they were all redheads, <laughs> and they were each wearing six different kinds of plaid. <laughs> and I was like, this is what they think you are, England. And it wasn't wrong. But I'd also like to point out that the word sex is, even though it does, it's not quite the same word in French. Like, you wouldn't say, like, I, you know, um, on a on a fait sex, uh, on a eu sex. Like, right. it, it doesn't work like that. You would The only time that I would say, like, sex in French is, like, to refer to genitals, which, of course, I do constantly. Okay. Um, but so, like, it, it seems like a kind of provocative word, too. But I will say that, again, uh, well, not again, but um, there's a movie called Force Majeure, which is a, uh, is he Swedish? The man who did um, uh, Ruben Ostend. He did uh, the um, Triangle of Sadness uh, last year. Uh, I believe he's a Swedish director, but Force Majeure... Stop, stop asking me things I'm supposed to know. Okay. <laughs> uh, but I only know things I'm not supposed to know. It's a, it's a great movie from the mid-2000s. Force Majeure is, is French. You know, even though we use that now in English, it is a French term. The French were like, cool, 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 snow therapy. <laughs> really? Yes. In France, that movie is called Snow Therapy. Riddle me the fuck this, okay? <laughs> therapy is not even an easy word for French people to pronounce. Everywhere in America, in England, it's And yeah, they can't do a TH. It doesn't fucking. And so it, to me, it's this is, yes, I, you can partly explain it by, oh, we want to make sure that it's understandable to French people. Oh, sex sells, question mark, which was literally a lot of like French French movie critics when they were asked, why the fuck do you do titles like this? That was their explanation. But it still doesn't quite work for me. There seems to be a simpler, more accessible way to translate these titles for French people. And yeah, sex sells. Sure. Totally. I guess like if you're in a movie or a TV show, that's what everyone always says when they're like, you know, in the boardroom, sex sells, like more money, uh, greed is good, whatever. But it just seems odd to me. Like, Sorry, the only movie that Naf has ever actually watched was Wall Street. 
over and over and over again, which actually explains why Moulin Rouge was so eye-opening. <laughs> it explains why she wanted wow. to watch it three times in 36 hours. Which actually in French, by the way, is called Sexy Money. <laughs> no, Moulin Rouge, you mean, right? right. <laughs> no, no, it's called Sex Dance. <laughs> sex sex Play. Because Sexy Dance is already taken. <laughs> Again, no redundancy. But I'd like to, yeah, I guess I want to posit to both of you, this is insane, right? It's not just that sex sells. It's just that French people are not good at retitling things. I said it. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, I think it just has taken on its own momentum and become a thing now. It's self-referential. And it's not, and it's, again, it's not made funny. I guess that's the thing, too. Like, I would also understand if this was a thing that happened and now it becomes kind of a joke. Like, so actually, to Rachel's earlier point, so with the kind of British ads in France, now the, the tagline is always, so British. Oh, that's it. So British. There's no other joke, right? It's never... It's Sometimes never made, they just say Brooklyn. <laughs> but it's never made more clever. It's never like, oh, isn't this kind of a weird self-referential thing that we do? It just stays there. It's just so British, sexy dancer. <laughs> but these are such recent things, too. It's like, it's not like Taxi Driver was translated as like sex taxi. Sex taxi, <laughs> which it could have been. <laughs> You know Marty Scorsese would come to France tomorrow and go, remove my fucking movies. <laughs> oh my God, all I want to do is come up with titles now. Last Tango in Paris, Sex Apartment. <laughs> Titanic, Sexy Ship. <laughs> the, the, the autobiography of Alice P. Toklas. Sexy book. <laughs> I want to just say, I can't even get mad at us for making these dumb because did you see, did you hear the titles I said before? These are real ass titles that were in the movie theater, okay? And ours were better than that. Yeah. I think it's a question of like English cells as well as sex cells though. Like, the, I'm one of the same. I'm only a sex cell. What are you talking <laughs> no, about? It's English cells. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but you know, English isn't a sexy language. I'm sorry. It's Germanic. We have the we have the glottal stops. We have all of this. This is like a time in high school when a friend of mine, you know, was learning Portuguese and, you know, saying what a sexy language it was to her boyfriend. And she was talking to him and you know, and she said, you know, talk to me in a foreign language. And he started talking German to her. And she was just like, nope, nope. And it's like, I feel like that's what English sounds like. Because if you do ask French people what English sounds like when they don't know it, they do like, mwah, mwah. But, but talking of, uh, you know, they have the same thing in Germany, but it's not exactly the same. Like They obviously, they retitle movies in German as well. Mm -hmm. The films, they have incredibly literal titles. Um, so it will be... You know, and a lot of them are in German, but it's like the, say for Last Tango in Paris, it will be like the film in which people have sex in an apartment in Paris. And that's like the title of the movie. Um, honestly. And, and, and also they do a dance that is in three quarter time. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, like, if you go through them and the, the, there's no idea of like the abstract in these titles which is bizarre because obviously like the german films can have um abstract titles but for some reason when they translate english films into german they tend to have these sort of like just it let's explain exactly what happens in the movie which is funny because also german has so many composite words for really right. abstract things mm. that you think that they could just you know call I don't know, uh, like a, a not another teen movie. Then just be like Schadenfreude, you know. <laughs> but but and also that that like kind of title norm to me makes a little bit more sense. At least it's oh, we want to try to explain to you what's in this movie. If I were to come up with anything, I would say, as I say, like the 
English language is quite cool in France. And the sex thing also obviously sort of sells in its way. But I think that with these titles, what they're trying to create almost are memes. Because the number of like French people who I've heard referring to a hangover or kind of a night out as uh city on very bad trip huh like and they'll they'll use it or the or they'll say things like ah oh, say so british oh that and, yeah. and it, it enters the general like vocabulary of french um and there's something about it being in a foreign language or in this sort of like other language, which I think means that it becomes like repeatable mm -hmm. in general conversation. Uh, we are some sex friends. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and um, um, I'd also say that sometimes the French just like to fuck with you, which is that one of my, <laughs> this wouldn't be our podcast if I didn't mention one of my degrees at least once. <laughs> my <laughs> master's thesis concerned uh, the Francois Ozon film's swimming pool, which I thought was just my version of it that had been translated into English. And so when I was discussing it in seminars, I would refer to it and be like, oh, and the films I'm looking at are like a Le Piscine. Uh, Le Piscine is... La Piscine. La Piscine. Um, oh, it's La Piscine. And they were like, oh, the Romy Schneider film. And I was like, no, the the Charlotte Rampling film. And they're like, no, we call that swimming pool. Because they just fuck with you. They just said, that's my, that's my theory. They just want to mess with your brain. As soon as you feel like, oh, I think I got a handle on this language, they're like, oh, we changed it yesterday. You didn't hear? You weren't at the committee? <laughs> that's so sad for you. What, what so do the Académie Française have to do, <laughs> say about this? Like it's, a, um, it's very bad trip. Is that a, uh, is it une very bad trip or un very bad trip? So. <laughs> the, the, the point number one, I think it's really sad that I don't have enough friends with pools that I knew the gender of that. Because <laughs> it's also like lesson one in French classes. Failing on all our parts, really. Um, but lesson two, I don't know what you mean by the Academy Francaise. Don't you mean Sex Academy? <laughs> <laughs> Another title, actually. I'm not joking. <laughs> Sex Academy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The title has nothing to do with this, so I can't even remember what it was. And now it's time for the love story. So this week we'll be discussing the 2011 movie Midnight in Paris, directed and written by Woody Allen. This was Woody Allen's 41st movie. And also it seems to be a theme for us, another American movie that opened the Cannes Film Festival in 2011 um, to enormous acclaim. And actually right off the bat, I should say this is Woody Allen's highest grossing movie after Annie Hall. So what we're learning really on this podcast is that the Cannes Film Festival has no standards. It's really, it is so interesting. And I actually do think that this is, quick sidebar, a lot of like serious French cinephiles will tell you, oh yes, the Cannes Film Festival is is now just a bunch of star fuckers. Like it's not really about art anymore. It's not really about this. I did do my master's here. Thank you. <laughs> it didn't win the Palm d'Or. Like it's um, I'm just in defense of Cannes. Uh, it opened the festival, and neither did Moulin Rouge. <laughs> but they would have wanted to give it the Palme d'Or, okay? They would have wanted to. Um, but also, historically, French audiences have really, really loved and um, cheered on Woody Allen's movies. Even I, I'm sorry, I think you mean uh, Woody Allen's movies. You're absolutely right. I'm so sorry. Woody Allen's movies. <laughs> um, they have, and there's actually a joke in um, a movie where Woody Allen plays a director who's going blind and who's trying not to 
led on to the rest of his cast and crew. There's right. a hilarious premise. I, I I'm I I refuse to even pity chuckle right now. I'm so upset about that movie. But the one line in that movie that is kind of funny, if you n- know the history around it, is the movie does terribly in America, but does great in France. And there's a line where he goes, thank God for the French. Um, so Woody Allen has always really acknowledged that France has saved a lot of his career. Well, and he always wanted to do a movie here. You know, parts of Everybody Says I Love You, Everyone Says I Love You yeah. are set in Paris. And he loves the music. He loves the culture. He loves the literature from the 1920s and 1940s, right? But do we love him? <laughs> I want to say, I think he's also equipped that uh, whoever writes his subtitles is really good in France. That sounds like a Woody Allen quip. (laughs) The only thing that makes me furious on his behalf for his career is that after all this goodwill, right, after all this acclaim for Midnight in Paris, it even won the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay, which he'd been nominated for, I think, three times before then. Um, Right after that, he decides to make To Rome with Love. That's what he decides to squander all of this goodwill on. Honestly, I think that this is also not a particularly great script. We're going to get into it. Mm -hmm. But I think that it's like the Susan Lucci, you know, had not won, had been nominated so many times that like eventually they just kind of want to give it to a person, not to like a project necessarily. Yeah, it's like like the Nobel. And Woody Allen may be up for that at some point in the future. Maybe. <laughs> that, that was a joke. <laughs> no, but the problem is, I don't think you're... No, no, but Chris, you know, good one, Chris, good one. I don't think you're wrong is why I made that face. <laughs> I think you're right. Woody Allen winning the Nobel Prize. Ah, oh, wow. But before we dive into this, I know we'd all been talking about how we want to contextualize this in the greater discourse about Woody Allen. So can you just bring us up to date a little bit on that uh, situation and what we should know before going into the larger conversation? Yes. So in between 1992 and 1993, Woody Allen was actively being investigated uh, by um, the ch- child sexual abuse clinic of Yale New Haven Hospital um, for uh, allegations of having a sexually abused one of his children. Now, he was found not guilty, but these allegations have resurfaced a number of times, including in 2014, when he received a Golden Globe Cecile B. DeMille Award for Lifetime Achievement. And to this day, there's a lot of debate about this. So again, legally, he has been found not guilty, but the discourse continues his tri- the child who he who he allegedly abused another child of his his ex-wife Mia Farrow have all been staunch about the their conviction that this has happened so we we feel it's irresponsible to not acknowledge that and to not mention it so before we move on i will say that one of the criteria i use in deciding whether or not to engage with artwork produced by people who have committed or have been alleged to have committed heinous acts is whether they are still alive to profit from it, who will profit from it, and in what way. And uh, with that in mind, I will say that while we did watch this film as a podcast, as the three of us uh, together, we watched a version I'd purchased immediately after it was released onto DVD. Allegations had been made at that point, certainly, but it had not yet become part of the larger cultural conversation to the point where I was aware of them. So that is not something that mitigates my discomfort with discussing Ellen's work, but at the same time is something that I think is important to throw out there as a possible factor to consider when discussing, you know, whose work merits discussion. (laughs) 
So with that in mind, who wants to hear some horrible accents? <laughs> um, so the story follows Gil Bender, played by a delightful Owen Wilson. Any problems that any of us might have had, I'm talking about me, any problems that we might have had about this movie, Owen Wilson was not one of them. Owen Wilson is wonderful. He and his fiance Inez, uh, played by Rachel McAdams, are in Paris at the very, very ritzy Hotel Bristol, which apparently is one of the most expensive and one of the most exclusive hotels in Paris. They're with her. Honestly, it just looked fine. Exactly. <laughs> it looked just okay. Apparently, it has a three Michelin star restaurant in it, which is one of the reasons why it's so coveted as a hotel. Ugh, you don't come to Paris to eat at your hotel, even if it has Michelin. That's true. You come to Paris to eat at a brothel next to you, McGregor. See our previous episodes. Or like Chris, uh, nibbling the edges off your baguettes as you're walking down the street. <laughs> like a real Parisian. Um, so Gil and Inez are with her parents. She comes clearly from a very wealthy family. Her father is doing some sort of business deal with the French, although, as he says in his own words, I'm no Francophile. <laughs> I'm a businessy businessman who just likes business, but I'm no Francophile. Have you gotten my backstory and character established? I think that's, that's a paraphrase of his words. <laughs> Barely. Um- <laughs> True. I mean, like something that is in, in a lot of, I think, Woody Allen's dialogue, there is like this huge kind of like explaining character motivation and you know, things like that. And also like in many of Woody Allen's movies, but definitely in this movie from which I read from lots of actors testimonies, he he doesn't really script it super strictly and definitely not this movie. So what he did was he, of course, had the moving parts. He's, he knew the scenes that he had to hit, but he did encourage all of the actors to basically improvise, right? To, you know, he would tell them the basic points that he wanted them to hit, and then they would use their own words within their character's fears to get that across, which is why there is a little bit of meandering in the dialogue sometimes. I don't know what you're talking about. It's tight as hell. That dialogue just sparkles off the screen. Um, so like I said, they're at the Ritz. My name is Dolly. <laughs> my favorite character. I will defend him to the death. Um, And they're also doing wedding preparations uh, because, as I said, Gil is uh, affianced with Inez, which seems to me wild because from Jump, they seem to not like each other and to not understand each other. We will get into that. Good point. (laughs) It's really a stop. Just almost have the same hair color. That seems to be what unites them. In fact, they have the exact same hairstyle, except that his is cut shorter than hers. Right. They have the exact same highlights. They have to show that he's a boy. Right. Of course. It's really important. Um, It has the exact same kind of tousled top. Very interesting. Same side part. Mm -hmm. So they're having one of their awkward dinners with their parents at the hotel, this famed restaurant apparently, when who should appear but Paul and Carol, another married couple. Paul is played by Martin Sheen at his pompous best. He's Michael Sheen. Sorry, Michael Sheen. What did I say? Martin Sheen. Different. You've got your Sheens mixed up. Martin Sheen at his comic best. (laughs) You know that famous talent that he brought to Apocalypse Now? Famed comedian. <laughs> um, so Michael Sheen and and Carol, um, they come. Sidebar shows you that Woody Allen only knows boomers because nobody has been named Carol since 1960. <laughs> uh, Paul and Carol come into the restaurant. Inez is so delighted to see them. We see from the beginning that Gil is not happy to see them, right? And they decide, so promptly she decides for them that they're going to hang out all the time with this new couple friend when they're not with her parents. Poor Gil. 
So they do a couple of... Gil, not great at boundaries. Terrible at boundaries. They do a couple of cultural activities with them. Paul pontificates. He's an expert in literally everything that one could be an expert in. Inez clearly is infatuated with him. He's a pseudo-intellectual, I think. (laughs) (laughs) That's uh, Gil Owen Wilson. Yeah, and he's not wrong, but he also just tags along. He just goes along with it. And then one night he decides to walk back from, they go on this, they do a wine tasting. Inez goes dancing with Paul and Carol. And he says, no, I'm going to walk. I'm going to walk back to the hotel. Sidebar, married ladies. If you have a single friend who wants to come, uh, sorry, not single friend. If you have a friend who wants to come alone with you and your partner to dance, either you're going to get a real uh, intense proposal later on that evening or something's already happening. And let me just add to that as well. If said friend has been Googling eyeing your husband the whole time or your partner the whole time you've been hanging out and then they go, yeah, I'd love to see just the two of you. Think about it. And she looks like Rachel McAdams. Rachel McAdams is gorgeous. What's the matter with you? You drag that husband back to your hotel. You teach him. <laughs> I can't make references to the, okay. Um, so he gets promptly lost, uh, Gil does, as he's walking back. And so he's, as he's going, as he's looking around trying to orient himself, this old-fashioned Peugeot, in his own words, comes into view. Peugeot, I think he calls it. <laughs> Peugeot. Um, it's a car, people. It's, it's a car. It's an old-fashioned taxi cab, it seems like. And there are a bunch of people inside who are drinking and partying. They seem like having a great time. And they're dressed in kind of 1920s flapper gear, it seems. And they go, come with us, come with us. As you do to people that you meet on the street. Not even meet, that you pass on the street. And he does so. And then what ends up happening, and this is basically the the largest part of the movie in terms of plot, is that every night at midnight, Gil is transported to the 1920s, uh, 1920s Paris. And before this, we should say as well, the thing that everyone, Inez, Inez and her family, they make fun of him for being so nostalgic. He's obsessed with 1920s Paris. He's written a book about a nostalgia shop. Exactly. And he continuously bemoans, oh, I wish I had stayed here. Instead, I became a Hollywood hack. The fact that Woody Allen didn't write a script is really clear because he keeps saying, oh, poor Owen Wilson, I'm just a Hollywood hack. I'm just a Hollywood hack because he apparently in the moment couldn't find new synonyms for that. Um, but he's very successful as a screenwriter in Hollywood, which is presumably why Inez also, it seems to be she's kind of, she's interested in him because of his success, because of his money. It also makes it hard to pay him though oh the poor successful screenwriter (laughs) my heart is bleeding you really do see why owen wilson's charm is important uh because you do like him and care about him i think even though as rachel said there's really not much to be that sad for him about it's like if your biggest problem in life is that you kind of wish you lived in paris (laughs) your life is pretty good and you have the kind of money that you could easily just buy a small apartment in Paris anyway and summer there or whatever. But so yeah, so that's his continual complaint. I wish I lived in Paris. I wish I lived in 1920s Paris. Everyone's always like, you're so old fashioned, you're so nostalgic, blah, blah, blah. And so every night he gets to go and he gets to meet his literary and artistic idols. He gets to meet Ernest Hemingway. He gets to meet F. Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda Fitzgerald. He meets Salvador Dali, truly one of the best performances in this movie. Don't listen to my co-host. Um, I shut off their mic so we can just talk about Adrian Brody for the next two hours. <laughs> um, but also, crucially, he meets Adriana, played by Marion Cotillard. She's this beautiful young, uh, she's a costume designer. She studies fashion and she has been the lover. Of, she's currently the lover of Pablo Picasso, who also is in this movie, serves Gertrude Stein. Axe is playing them. Yes. 
Yes, and, uh, no, Gertrude. No, they're desiccated corpses. Really, Gertrude's not. Chris, you didn't know that? And she's she's very good, I thought. She, I, I feel excellent. Yeah, really comes a lot. Yeah, I feel bad for the puppeteers. <laughs> <laughs> Kept losing body parts. <laughs> the the puppeteers of Team America kind of fell on their asses a little bit with this one, but they did okay. Um, and But Adriana is basically the muse, the, the lover of all these successful artists in Paris of this time. And so Sheen Gill hit it off right away, partly because she's also nostalgic at heart, but she's nostalgic for 1900 Paris. She's somehow seen Moulin Rouge, and it is it has damaged her brain. <laughs> so she waxes lyrical about la belle époque, la belle époque, and he keeps telling her, but don't you understand, 1920s are the best. So no one really understands that he's a time traveler. He doesn't, I think a couple times it comes up, and it's really actually, I think, humorously disposed of, that at some point he meets the surrealists, and he tells them, basically what's happening and they're like yeah it totally makes sense to us what are you talking about yeah yeah you're a body moving through space and time in different ways correct yeah aren't we all from the future man (laughs) exactly and finally so things with Inez are getting worse and worse partly because every night he he, so first he does try to he tries to bring her in on the adventure to be fair to Gil he he rushes her through dinner as she says petulantly as she's walking behind him and daddy hadn't even finished his profiteroles um and they go to the place and it doesn't happen. The magic doesn't happen. The car doesn't come. She gets annoyed, which I would too, frankly. If I was like, I've been rushed through my dinner and it's cold and it's rainy and I'm being made to sit on concrete. So she leaves and then the clock strikes. And that's when we realize as an audience that obviously there's something about the midnight hour in Paris that creates this bewitchingness. And also, Inez is clearly anti-magic. It, she really is. She's an anti-magic talisman. But also crucially in this movie, and I hope we'll talk about this later, the magic is never explained, right? It just happens. It just happens. There's not much time spent belaboring the point. He just gets to do this. And part of the joy as well of Owen Wilson's character is that he embraces it fullheartedly. He loves it. He gives his manuscript to Gertrude Stein. She tells him what she thinks. She gives him really encouraging advice. And actually, it seemed like pretty good writing criticism. And in in a nicer way than uh, I think Gertrude Stein actually would have done. Exactly. And then the, but the turning point. Friend of the podcast. Exactly. Oh, well, and more than a friend to me, frankly, (laughs) as we all know. Friend and lover of the pod. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, A turning point in Gil's relationship with Adriana is that they somehow managed to time travel back to La Belle Époque. And they meet, actually, Toulouse-Lautrec again, um, a friend from Moulin Rouge. (laughs) (laughs) An enemy of the pod. Enemy of the pod. He's a lot more down in this one than he was in Milan Rouge, though. Doesn't have that lisp anymore, just speaks French. It's, it's really different. It's a different take. Um, and they meet other really famous artists of that time period. And in, um, I almost said Inez, Adriana says to Gil, let's stay here. Let's not go back to the 1920s. And he tries to explain to her uh, when one of, I think, probably the thing that made me laugh the most when Gil says something like, I'm having an insight it's a very small insight. <laughs> <laughs> it was that Woody Allen's catchphrase for this movie? <laughs> but also to me, it felt like a very honest admission, which is basically that he says, I think we're all longing for something that we can't have. And she doesn't understand, partly because she's new to time traveling, so she doesn't have his time travel wisdom. But he decides to leave her. And it's they've at this point fallen in love to a certain extent. Um, also at this point, Gertrude Stein, strangely, has alerted Owen Wilson to the fact that Inez is 100% cheating on him with Paul. It, through his manuscript. Through his manuscript, right. Actually, it's Hemingway. Who, She's a very perceptive reader. Hemingway is the one who reads his manuscript and tells Gertrude to tell him, to tell Gil, I just, I don't believe that this character wouldn't understand that this other character, who's obviously Paul in the book, is, he's obviously, you know, uh, being cheated on. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So Gil, you know, 
goes back to his real life, kind of confronts Inez. Inez, it, hilariously also, Rachel McAdams really doing a lot with a role that gives her nothing. Uh, first goes, ah, I don't know why you would say that. Clearly she's lying. It's very clear. And then he goes, and then he pushes the point and she goes, ah, whatever. Sure, I slept with him a few times. Get over it. Um, walks out of the room, fully expects him to still get married. And then Gil says, I don't think we should be married anymore. And she has the delightful audacity to be hurt. Her parents come in. They're always just popping into their hotel room. And she and her parents are always in bathrobes. They're either in black evening wear or wearing white bathrobes because they're on their way. To that is the only correct lifestyle. Only correct lifestyle. I, let me be clear. I cannot wait to be wealthy. And I will. <laughs> don't even talk to me, bitches, when I get rich. Honestly, like I'm insufferable. I, I've said this before. I will not be relatable. I ref I refuse to have you relate to me. Ew, you poor people. But until then, I'm one of you. Um, And so, <laughs> so, <laughs> so Inez and her parents are so upset. Her parents, by the way, have always hated him. In the meantime, her father has actually hired a private detective to follow Gil. Um, and hilariously, the private detective played by Gad El Malé also gets lost, but he gets lost in the court of Louis XIV. Um, and he's being chased by guards last time we see him in Versailles. Um, and so in the end, Inez with her parents returns to California. The marriage, you know, they they break up the engagement. Gil stays in Paris. And the last kind of, if you will, lovely touch, although I won't because I'm not a fan of Laissez Du, is that this Laissez Du plays a, a, a woman who sells old records at, it seems like, is it the flea market? Or the it's supposed to be the Puce. It's, it's a definitely... Uh, it's definite. No, it's a bougified poos. It's not. You can tell. No, it it it's a it's supposed to be. It's but I don't think it's set there. I don't think it's filmed there. That's what I mean. Yeah, it's set there. It's not. That's exactly it. Thanks. Be filmed there. There are bougie parts of the poos. I guess there are. I don't know. I live. Don't sell records. The bougie parts of the poos sell like fourteen thousand euro you candles. I don't know. I live close to there, which is why I feel fairly confident that's not set. It's not filmed there. But we can. We'll check. We'll check. We're not sure. Um, but she sells records there. They bond over their shared love of Cole Porter because they're the only two people ever to have discovered that Cole Porter is very good at music. Okay. He's got a knack. Um, and then Laissez Du is coming home from a dinner and Gil is walking. All he does is walk in Paris and they run into each other and he tells her, oh, I'm actually staying in Paris. And she goes, oh, I, I you know, was reminded of you because there was a Cole Porter record that came to the shop. Again, there must be so many of them. It's fucking Cole Porter. Um, and then they kind of, and he asks, oh, do you want me to walk you home? And she goes, sure. And that's the end of the movie. Um, they walk into the, not sunset, it's very late at night, actually. Um, they walk into the nighttime of Paris. Uh, something which I've always thought is, it's on the uh, Pont Alexandre, um, yes. which, like, there's, that no one lives there. <laughs> like, you would have to walk a good 20 minutes before you even start getting right. to residential buildings, which is not where she's living if she's supposed to be working up in the, uh, you know, the clean and core market. Where was she going to see her friends? I mean, like, it, it would suggest to me that if she has got friends around there, then she's secretly super bougie as well. Oh, or she's time traveling too. And so, but her drop off point is somewhere else. Why on earth would you time time travel to 2011? <laughs> Knowing what the next decade has in store for you. You know what? What if she comes from like 3048 and we don't even know the shit that's going to happen there. And they dream of the early 2000s. Oh, they, God. They foam at the mouth thinking of like low rise jeans, Paris Hilton. <laughs> So basically, they're Gen Z now, being like, the early 2000s look so fun. And we're like, well. We'll always have Paris. We'll be right back with more of The Love Story.
We'll Always Have Paris is brought to you by Lingoda. Rachel, Chris, let me spin you a little yarn. Did I ever tell either of you about how I almost never, ever left the 10-meter squared room that I was sharing with a distant relative where whenever she folded the bed down, neither of us could ever stand up or move around again? Question mark? Don't think I have heard that story. Me neither. (laughs) Well... I tried to move. I did. I made appointments. I called people with my best high school slash college French, and I kept missing the appointments. I would either arrive hours early, no one's there, or literally hours too late, and then the person would be looking at me and speaking to me in French, presumably, but I wasn't quite sure of all the nuances. And what I finally figured out was, in France, time is told with military time, essentially. So you have to be able to understand very quickly what numbers are. And I would get it mixed up, right? So, for example, 17 o'clock is 5 p.m., but I would be like, oh, 17, 7. And I would arrive either at 7 a.m. or 7 p.m. I was a very confused person at this time. I haven't gotten that much better, but I can hide it a little bit more. Um, And it would have been great if I had just, I don't know, sat down, did some exercises. If I actually knew what numbers meant. I mean, French numbers in general are so confused. Ridiculous. that it's uh, to do with the... The, uh, what France brings from Latin numerals, which is why it's all uh, quatre vingt, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, what Chris is referring to is the fact that instead of actually just uh, having <laughs> what I would consider normal numbers <laughs> in English, uh, French makes you do math, it makes you do arithmetic. 80 is not 80, it's quatre vingt, which means four times 20. If you have 90, it's 90, which is four times 20 plus 10. So if you're trying to say 99, you get 99, which is four times 20 plus 19. And some of us just don't internalize arithmetic. But you can see that with enough practice, over the years, we've internalized these numbers to the point where we're not having to do the math in our head. And I finally moved. (laughs) So success. And when you're looking for your perfect Paris apartment, our big suggestion would be to take classes at Lingoda, the online language school that will get you where you need to be with your French and get those numbers in your head as fun and painlessly as possible. (laughs) Lingoda has a program called Sprints. These are two-month learning challenges where you take lessons intensively and you make big progress quickly. Two months, 60 days. That's 60, if you're still wondering in French. (laughs) If you attend a class every other day, these are 60-minute classes. They're not a huge chunk of your time. Every other day, that's a sprint for 60 days. Every day, that's a super sprint for 60 days. At the end of the 60 days, if you've attended all of the classes you said you would, following a few simple rules, you get 50% of your cash back if you took the sprint and 100% of your cash back if you took the super sprint. It's 24-7, live online. You can pick the topic of your course on any given day from LinkedIn. Lingoda's huge selection within each level. It's super easy to find a class. You have native level instructors with a maximum five students per course. So you know that you're going to spend a lot of time speaking and getting real life conversations where you can just use those numbers because that's how they're going to stick in your head, as well as learning grammar structures and practicing them using the optional exercises and quizzes on the Lingoda learning platform. So follow the link in the description and use the code HAVEPARIS20. 20 to get 20 euros or $25 off of your initial deposit. And again, if you take part in the 
sprint, you can get 50% of that money back at the end of 60 days if you follow all the rules. And if you do the super sprint, you can get 100% of that deposit back at the end of that period. Again, that's code HAVEPARIS20. Um, so I want to start by talking about the two leads. So we have, as I said, um, Owen Wilson playing Gil and Rachel McAdams playing Inez. So I was really surprised by this, that apparently Woody Allen wrote this role for Rachel McAdams. And when he pitched her the part, he told her, quote, it would be much more interesting for you to play this kind of character. You don't want to go your whole life playing these beautiful girls. You want to play some bitchy parts. It's much more interesting for you. And I'm curious about I'm curious about that being the the line that sold Rachel McAdams on this role. Wasn't she wasn't she the one in Mean Girls? Yes. So it's not as big of a creative leap as he has presented it. It's liter but it's literally called Mean Girls. And he's like, then you want to stretch your acting muscles? And it's I do also feel like the two roles that women can have for Woody Allen are like creative muse, wonderful dream girl mm-hmm. and bitch. Exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. And um, Inez is very much in the latter mold, right? She's the nag. And what I do appreciate about Rachel McAdams's performance, which frankly doesn't, I don't think it's enough credit because she does slot so neatly into the nag role is that she does find points of humor through her, clearly through improvising, right? Like that's Woody Allen's test. You know, everyone is improvising in this, in this film. She finds the moments of humor and she does, I think, a pretty good job of showing us why Gil's character could be annoying because Owen Wilson is so charming and Woody Allen, and he's clearly the stand-in for Woody Allen. Um, Again, for anyone who might not have seen a Woody Allen movie, there's always a Woody Allen stand-in for a long time. It was actually played by Woody Allen. And then when he aged out of that role, it was it would be Jesse Eisenberg or in this case, it'd be Owen Wilson. There is an excellent Onion headline mm-hmm. uh, that is an op-ed supposedly by Woody Allen entitled, Somebody Should Make a Movie About My Life. Link in show notes. <laughs> I love that article. Um, so I'm curious. Yeah. So I wanna, I'm curious to ask you both, what do you think of the two of them together, but also separately as characters in this movie? I do think that it's really important that she does show, because you really do step into this very structured trip life that she and her parents have. And as somebody who can have a plan and get very annoyed when the plan is disrupted, (laughs) having somebody who's just like, oh, I'm just going to go wander for a few. And you're like, but we have an eight o'clock reservation. Like, what do you want me to see? You're going to take me to see it. There's nothing. We missed that reservation. This was, what are you doing? Um, I do think that there are also uh, cliched moments that really don't do anything except signal that we should hate her, where, like, you know, it's not just the cheating, but also the part where she's like, oh, I've lost my earrings. And he's taken the earrings to give to Adriana in the other timeline, which it's like, that is not presented as hateable, which it's super hateable. Even if you hate your fiance, don't steal from her (laughs) to give to your long ago girlfriend because you're kind of cheating on her too that's the thing emotionally exactly her betrayal of him is is clearly telegraphed to us as being a horrible thing that she did whereas his betrayal is like isn't it romantic and dreamy but also because we're supposed to hate inez so when he 
kind as you said, emotionally cheats on Inez, it's not that bad because look at Inez. Yeah. And that's not how life works. But also, so with the earrings, she blames it on the maid, mm-hmm. on the hotel maid, which is like, it's, I can think of five sitcoms, shows offhand, where it's like the horrible rich woman blames it on the help. And like, but yeah, like, and I, I do believe that that probably happens a lot in real life, too. But there wasn't anything fresh or fresh enough to make me even believe that she does have that horrible, don't get me wrong, but hilarious slide where she says, you always side with the help. (laughs) Well, yeah, so I mean, she's in my mind, she, she is a villain. Like in this in this piece, she is portrayed as a villain. She's been written as a villain, um, and I I do think that uh, extremely wealthy and entitled people are probably do their comeuppance as villains. And I I think that's a a fine trope that I think we should be pushing because I do believe in like romance over the things that she represents. I think you can also like making your reservations on time. <laughs> Yeah, I, I believe in romance and chaos. Like, that's just genuinely what I believe in. Clocks and watermelons. It's a, it's a kind of like a sidebar. What I find fascinating is that movies uh, and uh, stories in general have always been pushing the romantic hero trope. Like, the, the heroes are always a bit more like the kind of the Owen Wilson character. And yet the world is still populated largely by people who are not romantic. And I think, like... <laughs> nobody thinks them. Uh, nobody thinks of themselves as not romantic. It's the Harry Met Sally thing. Nobody thinks they have bad taste or a bad sense of humor. <laughs> but most people have bad taste and a bad sense of humor. <laughs> Okay, and well, and this is a little bit of a stretch, I think, in terms of a, a reading of the movie. But something that did occur to me the uh, this last time that we were all watching it together um, was that she obviously has this. She's really pro. Was it two thousand and eleven? Um, and she doesn't have any nostalgia. And then when Owen Wilson goes back to nineteen twenty, does he? in some way like become her because of his love of the immediate time period that he's in and so in fact um Marianne Cotillard's character is sort of like she becomes this romantic kind of like head in the clouds figure whereas he's weirdly being this sort of like very practical one I don't think that's what Woody Allen intended but yeah because then you you fall down a weird rabbit hole I also think that I also think there's a question like is it really happening? I know that's, and I mean, it's a film, it's a story, it's, but like you could imagine all of the things of him going back into the 1920s as literally dreams that he's having. Yeah. One, one 10 second scene at the end where he wakes up in bed gasping yeah. and finds out it was a dream all along. It's not just going back to the 1920s, he's going back to the 1920s, and every time he goes back there, he's meeting all of these like you know huge figures from 1920s paris it's peripherally related to an old joke which is that when everybody says like oh i think i was so and so in a past life it's like nobody's ever like i think i was a bricklayer in a past life it's like i think i was you know ramses the second or you know right and everyone's also so kind to him that's the thing right gertrude stein who we know to be so prickly would could hate someone on site not only takes him into her inner circle. So wait a second. Do we? I think we know her as being quite nice and gregarious. If she liked you, but she remember she would. But she 
she could take an instant dislike to someone and then they'd be frozen out immediately out of her circle. So I just think it's interesting. And it's not just her, to be fair. Everyone really does love him. And I, I don't think slow talking surfer boy from California is going to be her type. <laughs> oh, wow. And he does read, she reads his manuscript twice with no problem. You know, she's not upset about that. But I think, so I think, um, and so two things. One, to your point, Chris, about does he kind of become Inez? I think that maybe what you could say is that Woody Allen is showing us this is how Inez could be a kind, normal human being, which is basically what, what it, so what Owen Wilson says to Marine Cotillard is, don't you see that what you're doing is not sustainable? She says, no, no, I want to stay here. And then he doesn't make fun of her and he goes, okay, and he leaves, right? So it's almost like he's modeling behavior that Inez will never see. <laughs> um, and the second thing I want to say was that if we do want to explore the possibility of this not being real, uh, the detective, Gad Elmaleh, does disappear though right and he does end up in Versailles so that's and I actually think that might be added a because it is funny it is a funny joke because when when uh Inez's father goes yeah apparently the detective is missing now too (laughs) but also I think it's a nice way to show us no no it's literal time travel that's true because that's something that can't be shown or interpreted as from Gil's perspective yes because he doesn't know it's happening exactly and final point is I uh I not final point but final point about just their relationship in general is that I do I do think it's interesting how Inez and Gil have so little chemistry because uh, for those who remember the movie wedding crashers owen wilson and rachel mcadams are a couple in that movie too and i remember them having excellent chemistry so i actually really do think this is just the directing did not work i I don't it's really strange to me how two actors but it's an interesting example right but wait but they're not supposed to have chemistry because they're falling out with one another but at the very beginning i think we should at least believe that they're a couple when they we meet them they're so obviously not going to make it they're terrible. Like, you know, there's nothing, there's no, that no point do I believe that they were actually ever really fiancés. Well, so I would say that, like, I, there are, you can take a lot of issues with Woody Allen for all sorts of reasons, but what he's doing in this movie is being incredibly efficient, I think, as a storyteller. And, like, there's no room for any kind of question marks or subtlety or anything like that, which is possibly why it's not a great movie it's a sort of a a work of escapism and it's fundamentally a comedy and so you're not supposed to be necessarily digging into the question of like well could Owen Wilson and Rachel McAdams have worked it out on some level they're destined not to work it out I think I was fine with the idea presented at the beginning the vibe that this was a couple on the verge of breaking up anyway and that you know the time travel stuff seems to have had as, as he as you referenced earlier what he like it leads him to like a small revelation mm-hmm, right. you know but uh, this is so funny i think as well about when you said a lot of improv in the movie i think there's a real chance that that was owen wilson's improv where he said i'm coming up with a revelation here admittedly it's a small one <laughs> so, yeah yeah um because <laughs> i have to say i mean like you know i've i've written uh i've written some kind of scripts in the past on a very amateur level but there is sometimes when you've written something very bad and the actor will just do that thing <laughs> like all right yeah you've got a point like, it's not <laughs> i haven't said anything great here i really love i love that theory and i will also say that also in kind of for me at least the tradition of woody allen's movies is that what he does always capture so well is the asshole american who travels um the parents in this movie he's really able to capture the specific ways that very very wealthy white americans of a certain age come to a place like paris and are 
just not great at it, right? Like are just are totally unaware of what's great about it. They're rude, right? And they really think they're not being rude. There are just so many moments where they're so insensitive. They're so callous. And I think he just does a great job of capturing it's not a generalized, oh, Americans are so terrible. It is a very specific type of American who's terrible in this very specific travel situation. It does have a lot of insight into the nuanced ways in which different kinds of wealthy people can be bad. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Throughout his oeuvre. Well, he's terrific. In, if you see, uh, you know, match point, I think is like, <laughs> and, and that's fascinating to me because it's a, a it's all in a british context and all of the characters are british but i think he just nails exactly the same attitude which exists in the uk as well and then immediately undermines it with the with the sentence and i'm paraphrasing here in tennis love means zero it is nothing <laughs> I do, hold on. I, I, I believe that's the tagline for the romantic comedy starring Paul Bettany, Wimbledon. I'm so glad you brought up Wimbledon. Uh, you're right. It's the one with Kirsten Dunst. Oh my God. How could I? How dare I? That movie was set in Paris. We could talk about it. I, I would love that. As we've established before, our lawyers will not let us. Exactly. They got ironclad contracts. Um, I want to ask you both a very general question, but I do think it's important. Um, does this movie work for you? And I'm going to leave it open. Yeah, it works for me on a very superficial level. Mm -hmm. Like it's a nice little comedy um, about a moment in somebody's life, like about a realization, you know, broadly speaking. And there, there's some, there's some funny stuff in there. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's something that I would have watched again mm -hmm. if we hadn't been doing it for the pod. But uh, it's. It's nice. It's it's light. Yeah. How about you, Chris? Well, I think living in Paris and, you know, and, and sort of part of the reason that so many people do move here to come and live, particularly in this circle, is because of our infatuation with that kind of like lost generation era and the idea of being an artist in Paris. So on, on the one level, it's always nice to have those vague fantasies that you might have visualized so it's a good it's a nice movie which seems to run in tandem with like fantasies of my own life i suppose so it's nice to it's nice to see that um conceptualized in terms of i don't think there's i don't think that the general plot of it says anything remotely profound um as said with this the insight is incredibly minor uh, and that's supposed to be the point of the movie it's fun to watch and it's it's nice to see what i would say is that there's actually there's one section in it where he's on a date with um marianne cartier's character and when they're walking along they're on the steps in montmartre and owen wilson has this little speech about um the idea that like when he looks up into the sky and he says I'm paraphrasing, but there might be absolutely nothing out there. And then talks about this notion of a city as this incredible concentration of human artistry um, and stuff like that. And that for all we know, Paris might be the hottest spot in the entire universe. And I think that that to me is, it, it's a lovely idea about the notion of a city of, uh, as a work of art. And I think that that actually corresponds with a lot of themes which go through other movies uh, that Woody Allen has made. So that to me is the 
best sort of most artistically resonant part in the movie, which I really like. And I think that's almost a throwaway line. No, I think you're right. I, I think that the opening of this movie, which is generally shot very efficiently, I think it's like a tight 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, we've probably got five minutes, which in film time is an eternity yes. of shots of Paris, which really echoes the opening of Manhattan, but without the voiceover in, in New York. And I think in both cases, it's Woody Allen just saying, you know, through the medium of cinema, what if you could fuck a city? <laughs> I'm absolutely, and what I think, which is also the thesis of this podcast. <laughs> but what I really like about the opening is that it shows a very. It, it's obviously it, it's filmed in lovely light, but it also shows an incredibly relatable Paris. Like that looks like the city that we live in, um, but without any tourists. <laughs> Yeah, with, with with fewer tourists, it's true. Uh, but nevertheless, it's still, it it gets to the romance of the idea of like what what Paris is, regardless of whether it's the nineteen twenties or in fact whether it's now, because it's a very contemporary image of Paris. And as, again, sorry, as a sidebar to that, I was saying that watching this movie, weirdly, because it was filmed ten years ago when I was also living in Paris, and I felt actually a weird nostalgia for the tiny details which I've noticed have changed in that image of Paris. And it, mostly that would just be in the municipal transport, like the the old velibs, for example, or the old taxis. And I found myself really thinking, ah, oh, oh, remember when Paris was like that? <laughs> I wish that there had been a more profound, and in some ways this movie is like just, it's good, it does what it sets out to do. It feels a little bit workmanlike. Mm-hmm. I wish that there had been moments of, that were slightly messier that led to more profound ideas about nostalgia in a way. Like there's a wonderful book of essays by an author called Megan Daum from the early 2000s, I believe, called My Life Would Be Perfect If I Lived in That House. And it's, which is definitely my attitude towards life. (laughs) But it's all about just how like her real estate fetishization and this idea of looking in at interiors and, you know, craving ownership. And, you know, you can see how, you know, this desire for our particular thing, you know, opens up all sorts of really interesting pathways. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's what Alan's interested in exploring here. I think it, I think his whole idea is like, wouldn't it be cute if... And, you know, it, it, I, I'm so curious about this because I agree with both of you. And yet this movie actively irritates me. And I mean, and I, that's I, fair. I can really see. But it. I genuinely agree with both of you. I don't. So first of all, I don't think it was Woody Allen's project to do anything more profound, deeper. I think it is meant to be a comedy. It's supposed to be light. As I said at the beginning, this movie did extremely well. It was largely really well acclaimed by critics and by audiences alike. And it just annoys the shit out of me. And I think part of it is how I think the acclaim is part of what annoys me. I think that he finally made a fucking good movie after decades of not making a good movie and everyone decided to give him all all the stars. So I think already that irritates me. And that's not just Woody Allen. Whenever that happens in general with movies and books and TV shows, whenever I think the whenever I think the acclaim is is actually not responding to the art in question, but is actually a response to this is how I feel about this person. I'm so happy they got a win. I'm already annoyed, right? And so, and I say this as someone who actually, there are lots of Woody Allen, not I me, mean, not lots, but there are Woody Allen movies that I love that I really do revisit. So I'm not here saying like I've hated every single one of his movies at all. In fact, one of my favorite movies of his is The Purple Rose of Cairo. Oh yeah, I, there's like, the thing is, is that yeah, this is compared to like proper 
properly good Woody Allen. This movie is is not good. But then compare it to like Blue Jasmine. But that's the problem, right? So I think that if I think if the if I think if the response had been less rapturous, maybe I could let go of some of like this weird rancor that I feel. But it is also because this movie made me realize I've got a pet peeve. I do not like when contemporary actors take on basically just do a quick sketch of a famous older person. And I'm going to talk about Ernest Hemingway for the next 15 hours. Just kidding. But but the oh, the embodiment of Ernest Hemingway played by Corey Stoll, an actor who I actually like. And also it pains me to say who actually does a good job of Ernest Hemingway because we read, well, I read an article that Rachel sent us today from The New Yorker where we find out that Ernest Hemingway really did speak like that. He spoke in the most annoying sentences ever. The problem was that he was already a caricature of himself. But, and so then when you get somebody doing a caricature of that, it feels too earnest. It just... It, uh, <laughs> I was on your side, Rachel. <laughs> squirming. The pun didn't get you. I can't believe that pun didn't win you over. I was squirming the whole time. The only one... Really, of the cameos, the ones that worked for me were either so, so off the mark insane. Enter Adrian Brody as Salvador Dali, who is just not even like he basically kind of looks like Dali in certain lights and then riffs off of that. It's either that or certain people who do actually, I think, manage to find something authentic in their, you know, sketch version. So I'm thinking here of Alison Pill, who plays Zelda Fitzgerald. I do, even though her accent is real, real inconsistent, which kind of annoyed me. But I do think that she finds something, she finds a person there. And I think that what happens in a movie like this, where, again, famously Woody Allen brings in his actors for like the day that they shoot and then they're out. So they don't know what happens in the rest of the movie. It's not like a lot of time. And again, that's not his project, right? They're not, you know, getting down to like, oh, what would F. Scott Fitzgerald really be like? But so you do get these kind of quick one-offs of these people in a way that annoys me. It's not a, it's not actually a com, it's not a comedy where we're supposed to be seeing absurd sketches of these characters. We are still someone in the realm of, it's supposed to be a whimsical comedy, right? There are a few laughs, but it's a quiet comedy. So I, I think that one of the things that Woody Allen has been doing throughout his career is actually this very thing, which is taking the very kind of like lightest understanding of a serious intellectual figure and spinning a an amusing caricature of it like love and death yeah and he himself uh, has admitted this on a number of occasions it's like he's not particularly well read but he he knows all of the the strings to pull out slightly and so yeah maybe you could argue that this is um exposing the fact that he doesn't know he's he's not willing to kind of go very much deeper on any of these characters or you could just say he's just having fun with it and he's playing with the general perception of what these people are then have more fun with it well i just think that if he had really gone into the depths of who scott fitzgerald was or who hemingway was it would have been a a, a very different movie whereas actually i find personally and we can discuss this after the pod, but I, <laughs> um, I personally find the the Hemingway scenes just very funny. And I mean, I don't, I'm not looking in this essentially silly, fluffy movie, which has been written for a wide audience for a particularly deep understanding or a new exploration of Hemingway. It, I mean, it could be a fascinating movie to tell the exact same story, but in a very serious way. But I think that I it's all about a brain tumor. <laughs> the, it just feels like in this movie, the impersonations really do feel like when you recognize them and you get the reference that you're supposed to be like, 
<laughs> Me too, I get that. <laughs> yeah, that's totally that that's totally what Woody Allen has dined out upon for years and years. Is just like you get the reference. Yeah. It genuinely feels like your most annoying friends at a party doing impressions of these people, but then somebody was like, Yes, hair and makeup, like now. And you're just like, No, but like that was fine for what it was. But don't make the like it really feels very like being put through the paces of just like it reads like one of his comic short stories that he used to write for The New Yorker, but expanded into a, a full kind of movie length thing. It doesn't because I do think, again, I, I think that Woody Allen has made some absolutely terrific movies. I think he's he's maybe the like six or seven fantastic films. Uh, this is definitely not one of them. What I would say it has, though, is that it's really efficiently done and created i mean like it 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 totally like um uh, a friend of mine always likes to talk about this it's like if if you hit it with a hammer like the the story itself wouldn't break like it 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 just it's it's so well if this is somebody who just knows he's probably written it in his sleep but he knows exactly the beats to hit at every moment which is why it's a huge commercial success and you can go back to it and you can enjoy it and again, I do think that a lot of my irritation is because it has gotten so much praise. And I just feel it's a little bit like the student at, in your class who has been getting Ds and they get one B minus. And then the teacher spends the rest of the semester going like, but you remember that B minus? And you're like, I've been getting A's this whole time. Okay, Linus is fine. Like, <laughs> let's not celebrate this too much. Yeah, Todd Haynes is in the corner just like <laughs> tapping his fingers on the desk. Exactly. Um, so yeah, so I think, so I would say kind of maybe... I don't know if there are last thoughts, but for me, it really is like if if you go into it with really low expectations, this could be a very entertaining hour and a half. Um, and there are lots of actors that you like. And Owen Wilson is so delightful. And I also want to just mention that apparently Woody Allen could not stop talking about how Owen Wilson was from California. And he was really tickled by the idea of creating a Woody Allen prototype who was not his usual East Coast person. Um, and from so so this is from The Hollywood Reporter, quote, Wilson himself was somewhat bemused by Alan's fascination with his West Coast lifestyle. Quote, he talks about me always being on the beach. I think he lives, thinks I live at SeaWorld. So, <laughs> and actually everyone, every interview I read from the actors was a mix of, wow, like again, that that thing where they're so honored to be in a Woody Allen movie, but then also a feeling of like, he's kind of weird though. <laughs> I didn't really get it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, that, that's a good place to end up, I think, is, uh, is yeah, it's a Woody Allen movie and uh, meh. And now it's time for our favorite segment, Mary Fuck Kill. And remember, it's Nuff doing it this week. <laughs> there are no people. Um, <laughs> I'm not joking. There are none. So your three options, your three lovely choices are Paris in the rain, Paris in the sun, and Paris in springtime. Huh. <sighs> okay, I'm marrying Paris in the rain for sure. Could have it day and night, yeah, just nonstop. Um, fuck Paris in the springtime. Its fleeting nature is what makes it really attractive. Mm-hmm. Paris in the sun smells like garbage and pee. <laughs> and tourists. Tourists everywhere. Yeah. No, get out of Paris during the summer. What are you doing? Done. Wow. Efficient. <laughs> <laughs> just like our source text. <laughs> Um, 
hard disagree. Paris in the Rain. I mean, this is one of the romantic things that I disagree with in this movie. Well, got, there's nothing great about Paris in the rain. It's raining. You can't do anything. I felt the exact same way. I really, I felt for my girl Inez. I was like, it's wet and cold. She's wearing high heels. It's so good to come inside. Well, that's it. So, but then, but Paris in the rain, if you guys live indoors, it's always going to be raining. Huh? <laughs> like, let's say, because Paris in the rain is fun when you're inside and you're cozy and warm, correct? But if you're marrying Paris in the rain, it's always raining. Yeah. And then you go out and you get wet and cold and you're just like, whoa, this is hard. But it's just like in a marriage. The hard times make the good times so good. But in my mind, conceptually, if I'm married to Paris in the rain, it's just going to always be raining. <laughs> like, like if we're in bed together, I'm being rained upon. If You know what I mean? Like if I'm trying to make a sandwich, the sandwich is just soggy and Paris in the rain is like, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's not good enough, Paris in the rain. <laughs> It, it, your idea of Paris in the rain is just Paris, but everything's wet. <laughs> it's like I don't want that. It's like Nicole Kidman's face in the latter half of Mulan Rouge, where she's just really wet from crying and, and also consumption. Almost a constipation from. Cons- we don't know. We don't know. Okay, so you're not. You, wait. Yeah, pa- yeah. K- kill Paris in the rain for sure. It's. I mean, yeah, maybe some like summer rainstorms in Paris are quite romantic. That is true. You want hot hot garbage rain, but not regular ice rain? Hot garbage rain! Paris, like, I think I'm going to say fuck Paris in the sun because, like, actually, I think that it's, you know, Paris, even when it's, like, boiling hot, um, it, it it can be there's a sort of a real kind of pregnant eroticism I would say to Paris in that kind of like particularly in the month of August when everybody has left the city and there's this sort of like weird privacy that you have despite being in this you know massive urban collaboration Chris also wonders what it would be like to fuck a city <laughs> <laughs> I knew there was something that brought us together I fucking knew it <laughs> um, yeah I think I, I think that like Paris in in the sun and it, it's great like I wouldn't want it all the time because like I mean Paris in the sun can also be I mean when it's really hot is horrible I mean like really really horrible but like there are parks and I don't really I can't say that yeah, unless there's a garbage strike I'm not going to be noticing the smelling garbage or even the pee I mean maybe after however many years here I've managed to just block that out like walk on and I just <laughs> I just smell the bread wafting beautifully from the, all of the boulangeries which uh, incidentally tastes a lot better when it's really hot in Paris the bread the bread yeah because it's like- urine <laughs> <laughs> ne- next time there is a heat wave in Paris just pay special attention to all of your traditions like they are like so much better when it's in a heat wave because I guess it's something to do with the, the dough rising faster or something um, but anyway, I'm getting off track. This is it. I'm not saying I'm turned on by really good bread. I am sometimes. <laughs> You're also not not saying that, yeah. Chris, and you know it. I, I fully admit it. <laughs> and then, like the cliche that I am, I'm going to marry Paris in the spring. Actually, that is the smartest move because you have everything. You have sun, rain, cold, heat. Flowers blooming, not yet bloom. Mm. Unless it's this spring, in which case it's just cold. But, um, you know, apart from that, like, yeah, Paris in the spring. The cliches are true. Like, it's great. 
So I 100% am going to marry Paris in the spring. I'm a changeable bitch. I really want to be married to someone who also is temperamental. We'll have, yeah, we'll just, we won't get bored in the relationship. It'll be a fun marriage. We've also got two spring babies here. If Paris in the fall had been on offer, would have taken that in a heart. Paris in the fall would have been difficult because that's really solo season for me. That's when I bring out my best blazers, my best coats. That's usually like my fashion time. So I don't really need to be weighed down by a relationship. That's why I didn't. That's why I didn't put it there, right? Like, that's really when I'm solo dolo. I'm just a trendsetter. Um, but it makes you look good. I look great. That's where I get my s- springtime bit. Okay, okay. You see what I mean? Like, it's a seasonal thing for me. Um, I think I'm going to fuck Paris in the rain. Because I'm just imagining Paris in the sun. And I, you know, so I, I should say, I'm, you know, I'm a little bit of a depressive babe. And sometimes when people are too happy. It's exhausting. Like, you know, like, who, ne- I don't need more. Ooh, the people who are super into sun. Some of you are my friends, but we don't understand each other. That's it. Exactly. Some of you are very close with me. We have talked about this. You know, I don't need unrelenting, unyielding cheerfulness, right? I don't need optimism. Sometimes I want to have, I want to go to Paris and it's raining and it's gray and we just fit. We just get each other. But I don't want to marry you, right? Like, I don't need you to bring me down all the time. But there are just times where I need to sink into it and you're right there for me. So Paris in the rain, Paris in the sun, (laughs) you did. And that was whatever our podcast is called. (laughs)